Well, good evening. We are continuing our series on essentials of the Christian faith. It's good to see that, that uh, I don't ever know how many people are here or how many people are online because I just never ask. But it's good to see the numbers not going down because that would mean that we were kicking people out. And that's not the point of this, uh, of this series. Seriously, let me say a prayer for us. We're gonna dive right in. Lord, thank you for your mercy and the grace that you showered upon us. Father, thank you for opening so many doors of opportunities for us to serve. Lord, I do lift up uh, our prayers for comfort, for relief of anxiety, for healing. In this number, Father, we have so many requests. And we thank you that you are with us. We trust that you see further down this road that we can see. And we also trust that you are good, that you love us, and that you work in all circumstances for good. And Father, I pray you would give us faith to trust you even when it's difficult, in Christ's name, amen. Well, here's your number for questions. Uh, it's on your handout, on the online handout as well. So just text your questions during class. So we are talking about uh, the essentials of the Christian faith. And the basic idea is simply this. Instead of, uh, you know, kind of a list of rules, you know, to be in this club, you must do that. To be in this club, you can't do that. I really want us to look at the Christian life as a way of life. It is a way of completely emulating and completely being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. That way of life has certain boundaries around it. Things that are on the path and things that are off in the weeds over there. And so the approach that I'm trying to take is to just sketch out what, are, uh, the, what defines the path and what isn't in that essential means that we're drifting off into the weeds. And so we've talked about several things. The first, we talked about the authority of scripture. If we don't accept that the scripture is authoritative, at least whether you hold it inerrancy or infallibility, leaving that aside for this discussion, if you don't hold that scripture is authoritative, then you really are at a loss to say, what does it even mean to follow Christ. In other words, I could do it in my way, and this happened throughout history, and we call those things heresies. And that's not a popular word these days, but it simply meant someone that got off into the, the woods. They were off the path, and they said, I'm gonna follow Jesus, but I'm gonna go do it this way, or I'm gonna do it my way. Without any authoritative basis, there's no unity whatsoever. And so we talked about the authority of scripture. I would suggest that of the two ways that people tend to get off track of following Christ in our culture, talking about Western culture now, Western Christian culture, this is the number one way, is some dispute or some erosion of the authority of scripture, some boundary dispute about what's the path and what's not on the path of Christianity. The second thing we talked about is the core of uh, the scriptures, the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, which is the death, burial, and bodily resurrection of Jesus. And if you remember, we talked about the elements of that. That event, it's a historical event, which by the way is rare. Most religions are not based on historically verifiable events, but Christianity is. And so what does it mean well, we looked at this passage in Ephesians and what the whole point of the gospel 
is that you have the idea that we were rebels against God. And one of the ways of saying is that we are enslaved to sin, we are uh, walking down a path of sin, following our sinful nature, following the desires of our mind. Think of it as in some manner or, or another being self-absorbed, self-rule. So that was our situation. That made us, uh, it says here, you know, living in the passions of our, our bodies, carrying out the desires of our minds. We were by nature children of wrath. In other words, if indeed there is to be justice in the world, then God must deal with rebellion, deal with sin. And so God has a justifiable anger at sin. Sin always has victims. Sin always has a victim. And so if there's to be justice for those who are oppressed, if there's to be justice for the victim, if there's to be any hope for us to live a life that's free from sin, uh, that God was gonna have to intervene, and so he did. But God, because of his mercy, and because of the great love with which he loved us, made us alive with Christ. We have been rescued, and I like that term better, I think that's gonna resonate a little better, because it implies that we were in trouble. And that is the point of the gospel, is we were in deep trouble. But it's by God's grace, it's by his favor, that we've been rescued and we have been raised up with him. So you get the idea of the reality of sin, the fallenness of humanity, the justifiable anger of God, the intervention of God on our behalf so that we might be rescued by his grace and that Jesus, by bearing the sins, made uh, an atoning sacrifice, a propitiation, uh, victory over sin, whatever your view of the cross is, is, is not my issue at the moment. But the point is that Jesus dealt with sin on the cross. So the gospel is the second thing. The third thing is, I wanna talk about the nature of God. Voltaire, this is a clever, Voltaire was a clever guy. I, I wouldn't uh, urge you to emulate him, but he was a clever guy. And I think this is a great statement. In the beginning, God created man in his own image. And ever since, we've been trying to repay the favor. And this would be the second way that I think people step off the path of Christianity. One is by smudging the boundaries by, well, does scripture really say that? Does scripture really mean that? Is scripture really still authoritative? The first way would be to do, deal, somehow deal with the authority of scripture. I, to me, this is an opinion, the second biggest way is to somehow create a God of my own liking. And so this idea of the nature of God is an essential item. In other words, we don't get to create God. He is who he is. Oh, that's a very biblical thing, isn't it? I am who I am, or I am who I will be. And so God is self-defined. He is not open to being defined by us. So the nature of God is an important idea. And so I'd like to dive into what are some of the things right down the middle of the path on what we believe about the nature of God. So let's start with the fundamental confession of the Jewish faith is the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And then it goes on, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, and with all your strength. 
Jesus was asked uh, several times, but once in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment in the law? And of course, he quotes the Shema, the fundamental confession. The most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. He goes on there and he says, the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And so this is a bit of an editorial comment, but you, you sometimes hear this idea that we kind of take on that the essence of Christianity is love God and love your neighbor. And I'm, I'm not arguing with that because that's a really good thing. But actually what Jesus said was that's the way to be a really good Jew. That's the way to be a really good Jew. Uh, it's also great for Christians too, but that's not the fundamental confession of the Christian faith. We do believe that the Lord our God, the Lord is one, but the fundamental confession of the Christian faith is what Peter said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And that's the essence of the gospel. That's the essence of the new covenant. We don't rule out any of the things in the Old Testament, but I just would want you to understand that God's essential nature carries through, but he has revealed himself in Jesus Christ in a way he did not do to the Jews. So our God is one. It's not like uh, the Hindu uh, religion where there are a pantheon of gods uh, and you can worship many, you can worship one, you can worship a few. There are a lot of different gods. It's not like um, probably the most common that you would know would be Buddhism, where there is no God. I mean, it's, it's just not a religion that has a God. And so it, it's a, it basically Christianity and Judaism share this, that we serve a God who is one, one true God. We go on to Exodus, and you see the first of the 10 commandments. And God said these words saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, you shall have no other gods before me, instead of me. Not like, I have to be number one. No, it's more than that. It's like, I have to be only. You shall have only me as your God. You shall not make for yourself carved images or likenesses of anything that's in heaven above or life, anything that's in the earth or anything that's in the water under the sea. By the way, this is one of the reasons that archeologically, you don't have statues of Moses. You don't have statues of King David. And you do in other civilizations. Obviously, you look at the uh, Egyptians, for example, of ancient, 4,000 year old plus civilization, you've got all these statues. Uh, you look at the Romans, the Greeks, and almost any other ancient civilization, and you have statues of their rulers. You have images on coins of rulers. It was PR in the ancient world. You know, before the internet, you had coins. Put my face on the coin. Everybody knows that you're the king. And so, but with the Jews, you don't see that. And so sometimes people would argue, for example, there was a big argument about King David. Like, was King David really real? Or was he kind of a King Arthur-like legend? And one of the things, you know, one of the accusations is, well, don't have any statues, don't have anything from him. And that's kind of a false accusation. And since that time, of course, there have been great archeological discoveries about King David, and that's no longer an issue. But you're not gonna find a statue of King David. And this is why. 
is Jews then and now don't believe in making images of people, not because they think you're gonna worship them, they just don't wanna get close to that line. We just won't make statues of people at all. And in fact, if you go to Israel, go to Jerusalem, it's not like going to Washington, D.C. You're not going to see a big uh, carved image of Abraham Lincoln. Well, probably wouldn't see that in Israel anyway, but you get my point. You're not gonna see those images. And so it goes back to this, that you are the one God and you're the only being worthy of worship. And that kind of comes along with this idea. Jesus said it this way, no servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And obviously his point is you can't serve God in anything. In other words, anything else that you worship is an idol. And there's a lot of talk about that today and a lot of Christians really thinking about this idea that we live in an idolatrous culture even though we don't bow down to images and we don't necessarily make food sacrifices and we don't sacrifice animals and to different gods and things like that. But we live in an idolatrous culture, meaning this culture has plenty of things that will ask you to worship them. And so this idea of God is there's one God and he's worthy of worship. I'm gonna suggest to you that there are a lot of ways to sin, but I think the New Testament, and Paul particularly in Romans 1, makes a good argument that this essential of the Christian faith might be at the base of a great deal of sin, is violating this one thing. I mean, if you look at the Ten Commandments, I don't know if you're like me, you read the Ten Commandments, you start off with this one and you go, that's a gimme. You know, at least I'm gonna get 10% right on this test. You know, you know, you ever had that? You could take a test and you got some easy questions. You go, well, at least I got a few easy ones. This looks like an easy one. Like, well, no, I'm not worshiping any other gods. But I would suggest to you that it's more subtle than we think. That the idea of God being the only thing worthy of worship is, uh, is more fundamental than we think. Let me give you an example. So I wanna go to Romans chapter one. You're probably familiar with this for other reasons. I wanna look at an interesting little parallel in here, and I'm sure you've noticed this before. But follow along with me. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. Paul here's talking about, he's just finished saying that uh, the wrath of God is being revealed against all unrighteousness of humanity. And he shortly comes along to say, they thought, we thought we were really wise, but we were actually fools. We exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images representing him. So we made an exchange, and as a result, God gave people up to the lusts of their hearts and to impurity. And so Paul's saying a lot of profound things here, but the one simple thing that I wanna focus on is, is at the root before we get to all the other sins he's gonna talk about, the fundamental root of all of this sin is making an exchange. We've exchanged the one true God worthy of worship for something else. In this case, they exchanged it for created things. 
So God gave them up to the lust of their heart, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged, it's gonna be three pairings here. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie. What does that remind you of? That sounds so Garden of Eden, doesn't it? That sounds so much like Adam and Eve. And the way Paul is gonna cast this is what happened is Adam and Eve knew God and knew he was worthy of worship, but they made an exchange and they said, instead, I will become like God. There's the fundamental exchange that they've made. And so they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, us. You know the creature we most often worship? Ourselves. Therefore, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. God gave them up to what this God, myself, my selfish desires, you know what myself wants more than anything? Gratification of my desires, physical, mental, Think, just think about this. All of this can be understood as exchanging the one who's worthy of worship most of the time for me, for self. And what does that mean? Well, now all of a sudden I'm chasing pride, fame, power, money, control, all of the things that seem to aggrandize myself. And so we make that exchange. He said, for their women exchange Changed what is natural, which that's a very philosophical word. That, that's where we get our word physics. And what he's saying there is we fundamentally not only exchange the God that we were going to serve, we actually stepped outside the entire design of the universe the entire design of the way we are made to flourish. No human being flourishes in sin. Sin is a downward spiral. It's not a, I'm gonna go sin and be so happy for the rest of my life. Well, that's the promise, but that's not the delivery, is it? Sin is a deconstructing idea. And so here what he's saying is, is we've stepped outside God's order and so, God gave them up to a debased mind. Isn't that interesting? Not only do we give in when we trade God for something else ourselves, we not only give in to our simple lusts of the flesh, or the NIV likes to translate it sinful nature, uh, my selfish desires, it also alters our thinking because we no longer see the world truly like it is. I'll give you a great example of this. Jesus and Pontius Pilate having a discussion in the Gospel of John. And Jesus said, for this reason I came into the world, to testify to the truth. Everybody on the side of the truth listens to me. And what does Pontius Pilate say? And he says this, he says it cynically, but it's really true. What in the world is truth? Our culture says that every day. What is truth? Is there even such a thing as truth? That's what this is saying, is making this fundamental exchange of the one who's worthy of worship for something else not only 
twists our souls, it twists our desires, it also alters our minds so that we do not perceive the truth. We are fundamentally, fallen humanity is on a huge kick of denial. In other words, and I'm not, I'm not trying to get into current events, but it's such a softball, I have to mention this. The fact that in America today, it's hard for someone to say what is a man and what is a woman. And again, I'm not trying to pick on anybody, I'm just saying, do you need any more in your face evidence that there is a, there is a lack of ability to understand the fundamental truths of the universe? That's what Paul is saying when we make that exchange. So I know that first commandment, you should have no other gods besides me, sounds like an easy one, but I'm gonna suggest to you that more getting off the path of following Christ comes from making some kind of an exchange. Exchanging the God who's worthy of worship for something else. Okay, next. Another fundamental is that God created the heavens and the earth. Why is that an essential idea? Well, obviously the scripture tells us that, but I wanna talk about why this is essential. And if we leave this out, you end up with some very aberrant things that aren't really Christianity. So obviously we go back to Genesis, and I've just edited this a little bit. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Translate that to the universe that you know and see and can experience. God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was fluttering or hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. So I just, you know how it goes from there if you've read the book of Genesis, but the fundamental idea is that God is the initiator of everything that is. God is creator of everything. God is not manipulator of everything that is. He is the creator. And then a little further. So God created humanity in his own image. In the image of God, the only thing created in the image of God. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion over all the creatures on the earth. And then finally, and God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. So why is this, I mean, you may be thinking, yes, that's true, but why is this an essential truth? Because there are gonna be some differences among Christians in the how God created the heavens and the earth. But the fundamental idea of God is the creator of the heavens and the earth, and God did it in a sovereign way. And what do I mean by that? Well, probably the two biggest contrary ideas that are competing for your belief here is the first one is an outright repudiation of the idea that God created humanity in the earth. And I'm gonna call it Darwinian evolution. And that's a big can of worms, but I wanna be very specific about what I mean by that. What I mean by that is Darwinian evolution is opposed to the truth of scripture. 
evolution, we should talk about it sometime. But Darwinian evolution fundamentally says this. It says that everything that you see can be explained by two mechanisms. I mean, it's, it's as simple as it gets. Random mutations, let's talk about biology at the moment, random mutations and natural selection. So you probably know of that as uh, random chance, mutated beings, uh, and that, you know, there's no doubt that you do see, quote, mutations. I mean, that's real, that's a real thing. Uh, COVID, how many variants of COVID? We all now are experts in virus mutation, aren't we? You can probably tell me about spike proteins. You can talk about how, where proteins attach and how virulent the virus is gonna be because of how easy the protein attaches. We're all microbiologists now. I feel like we're pretty educated from the COVID time. But my point is, is that Darwinian evolution is trying to rebut this and explain everything that got here can be explained by random processes and then think survival of the fittest. That's not a Christian idea. In fact, that theory, Darwinian evolution, is probably the most widely accepted scientific theory that almost no one believes. I mean that seriously. If you poll people, you'll realize that, oh, evolution, yeah, it's definitely true. Well, did we all get here by random chance? Are you kidding me? That's the most absurd thing I ever heard of. It's the, it's the scientific doctrine that's, that's accepted but rarely believed. And one of the reasons of it is, is that we do sense there is created order. So my point is, one of the uh, doctrines uh, is opposed to this. And so, of course, that will take us off the track because the whole point of that is trying to get rid of the idea of a creator God at all. But the second's a little more insidious, and it's what we call deism. Deism is the idea that there is a God, but not the God of the New Testament, not the God of the Old Testament. In other words, deism says, look, I don't believe this random mutation stuff. I don't believe, let me just be more precise. I do not believe that it is a sufficient mechanism to explain everything that you see. I think something started this. Something set this in motion. Somebody wound this clock up to get it going. But a deistic God is a God who winds the clock, sets it down, and goes off about his business. And so this universe is moving on in a very uncaring way according to natural and sometimes unnatural laws or rules as to how things happen. This is an idea that wants to flirt with Christianity and the Christian God, but doesn't fully embrace the idea of God as creator, that God continues to be involved. So neither random chance made everything, nor an unconcerned God who simply designed it, wound it up, and let it go. Neither one of those are the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is not the God of the scripture. That's not the God that we worship. So God, the creator uh, God, is an essential belief. When you see this erode, I can't help but make a, an obvious, I mean, our culture is so easy to diagnose right now from our perspective as Christians. If you were going to erode this idea of God as the creator, 
We were made in the image of God. And I said to you, people are gonna start fudging that. I mean, if that's right down the middle of the path, people are gonna start kind of taking a few steps away from that truth. What do you think would be the signs of that? The signs of that would be that you begin to say, well, did God really make everybody in his image? And what do you see? Tribalism. Some people are subhuman. That's not a Christian idea, is it? That's behind some of our race issues. It's behind most of our ethnicity issues throughout all of history. The second thing that you would expect to see is obviously different people maybe aren't all made in the image of God. You start fudging that truth a little bit. But the other thing that you would see is that people that aren't useful are no longer really made in the image of God. Who are the people that our society considers to be the least useful? In our society, this isn't true for the whole world, but it's true for Western society, if you can produce, you're useful. If you can't, you're not. If you aren't born and if you are elderly. Those margins are not utilitarian to our culture. Consequently, what you see happening in our culture is those two segments of human beings are beginning to be devalued in our culture. So my point is, once you start to erode this essential truth that everyone is created in the image of God, everyone deserves the dignity of life and the opportunity to flourish. Once you start deviating from that, you quickly get outside the bounds of Christianity. That's not Christianity. Christianity is not a utilitarian view of humanity. Like you're only uh, worth something if you produce. Now that's what our culture will tell you. It's what our economic system will tell you. And it's soul crushing, isn't it? It's soul crushing to realize that at the end of the day, you're only as good as what you last performed. Maybe some of you have been on that little hamster wheel before and it's not a good place to be. It's not a Christian place to be. That's not who our God is, okay? Okay, this is getting preachy. You get the idea. But it's an essential. That's why it's an essential idea. When you deviate from this, you begin to see very, very unchristian things start to happen in a culture or in a group of people. God is three in one. This is one of the great mysteries, but has been upheld throughout Christian history, is the idea of the Trinity, that our God is three in one. So just some examples from the scripture, because you're probably gonna get an objection and say, well, you know, the word Trinity is not in the scripture and it doesn't say God is three in one. But that imprint is all over the scripture. And I just plucked a few out of the New Testament uh, where you can see one is Jesus, one is Paul, one is Peter. I just picked them from various people, give you a little variety. So this is the Great Commission. Go therefore, Jesus says, and make disciples of all the nations. I want you to baptize them. Oh, interesting, baptize them in the name of God. No, baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Spirit of God and of the Holy Spirit. That's interesting language there. Uh, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all, says Paul. 
beautiful little benediction, by the way. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in basically modern day Turkey, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, and for obedience to Jesus Christ, for the sprinkling of his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. This is a mystery. And I'll admit to you that I'm probably uh, a little bit of a cynic about trying to explain this mystery. And when I say it's a mystery, what I mean is it's not entirely easily comprehended. You can comprehend the truth of this, but it's very difficult for us to comprehend this in uh, flat language. In other words, I want you to think about if you lived as a two-dimensional being, you would not be able to completely encompass a three-dimensional object, would you? Uh, if you live like us and you lived a short lifespan, you can't really understand an eternal being. If you have limited knowledge like we do, you have an idea, but you really can't understand what it would be like to know everything. In other words, when you're limited, it's hard to know what's unlimited. We, being individuals, really have a hard time bringing this down to us. And so almost, okay, this is a Terry cynical thing to say. I'm just gonna be honest with you. Almost any example you can think of of the Trinity is heresy. I'm not gonna accuse you, I'm just saying, if you got ice cubes and water and steam, if you got eggs, you got, all the examples fail to do justice to the nature of the Trinity. And all joking aside, it's simply not a concept that fits in our little limited world very well, but it's true. And the beauty of that truth is, it is the model of intimacy. I mean, think back in, uh, just as a, as a little bit of a, of a foreshadowing, you've probably asked yourselves a million times during your married life, why in the world did God make, fill in the blank, men? Why in the world did God make women? In other words, why did God make things the way they are? Well, actually, that's by design, isn't it? And that design is very important. And you know what that design is about? It is about the idea of two separate beings becoming one. It's not a coincidence that the scripture talks about that the, the husband and wife become one. You get this intimacy. It is the, the closest intimacy. You may argue about children. Children may be the closest to a godly love but the relationship between husband and wife is the most intimate relationship that we know. The most two becomes one. Why does God do that? To give us a little taste of what God himself is like. God himself is three in one, bound by, I'm gonna use the word intimacy, bound by love, bound by transparency, being perfectly known and perfectly loved. The Trinity is that idea of what we will enter into. And marriage, biblical marriage, is a foretaste of that. Does that make sense? The, the 
reason that, that God is three in one, he invites us to share in that. I'm convinced that's one of the major reasons there's a church. The church is talked about in family language. Uh, the church is talked about being the bride of Christ. Why? Because it's the most intimate relationship we know. It's an earthly way of talking about real transparency. Christ sees us, knows us, loves us, and we want to be like Christ. Complete intimacy. This idea of the Trinitarian God is, is a core idea. And I went on about that because I, I really want us to understand that this isn't a trivial doctrine of the church. It is essential to the nature of God and we are moving that direction. We're not gonna be lone rangers who follow the path to get to God and now here we are. I'm an individual, climb to the top of the mountain, here I am in heaven, hope the rest of you guys made it. it, it that's not the way this works, is it? We are a family and we care and we give each other a hand up and we carry the burdens of our brothers and sisters. We participate in this kind of intimacy in the church, okay? God is sovereign. This is an essential idea, is that God is, uh, when I say sovereign, what I mean is God is king of kings, he is lord of lords, he is almighty, omnipotent. Think omnipotent. God is able, he is powerful. Just a couple of passages. This is God speaking revelation. I am the alpha and the omega, says the Lord God, who is, who was, and who is to come, the almighty. Here's God saying, I am outside of time and I am completely powerful. I am completely able. I'm the creator. I'm the sustainer. God is able. Acts 4, this is really interesting because these are the Jews talking. And when they heard it, they lifted their voice together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in it, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why do the Gentiles rage, etc.? He said, because what happened with Jesus, your holy servant, I'm gonna skip forward a little bit, whom you anointed, and Herod and Pontius Pilate, and all the Gentiles basically came to kill him, but what they were doing, what actually happened there? Who was actually powerful? They did what your hand and your plan predestined to take place. That statement, is a statement of the omnipotence of God, but not just in uh, the omnipotence of smiting and fire from heaven and the earthquakes and the mountains roar, and it's not just physical power. It's not just create the universe out of nothing. It's also the God who foresees and foreordains. The way I like to say it is this, think about that all of history bends to God's purposes. That's what this is saying. Pontius Pilate had a purpose and Herod had a purpose and the people had a purpose and they did something that looked really bad, but actually everything happened according to God's plan and God's purpose. That's what I mean by sovereignty. Not just physical power, but that everything moves to God's plan. 
God has to be powerful. If God is not sovereign, then you worship a God who is not able to rescue you. This is why this is an essential idea. The sovereignty of God is essential because if he is not sovereign, it becomes a Lord of the Rings. You got Bilbo with the ring and you got Sauron is so powerful and you got good and evil duking it out with each other. And you know, those three movies are 12 hours. You don't know till the last of the 12th hour who's gonna win. That's the kind of God you have if he's not sovereign. Does that make sense? A sovereign God, you know how this story turns out. But that's not all. Because you see, a God who is sovereign might be a good sovereign or a bad sovereign. I would argue that, think about probably the sovereign that you and I know best before she died was the Queen of England, Queen Elizabeth. You would think of her as, oh, she's a good sovereign. She's a good queen. Think Xi Jinping, Kim Jong-un, China, North Korea. Those are sovereigns. They have uh, basically dictatorial powers in a political sense. Well, they're sovereign, but they're not good, are they? And so the thing about God is, is that God is sovereign, but sovereignty by itself doesn't entirely capture the nature of our God. God is sovereign and God is loving. This is all over the scriptures. For God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son. Whoever trusts in him should not perish, but have eternal life. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this Love of God was made manifest amongst us that God sent his one and only son into the world so that we might live through him. So over and over and over, you get this idea. You see the sovereignty of God over and over in the scriptures. We just don't watch for that as much. He is able and he is good. So a God that loves you, frankly, might make you feel better, but is not of much use to you. There was a book written by a Jewish rabbi, those decades ago, um, I'm trying to remember the name of it. I think it was just simply, why do bad things happen to good people? I might have just stole the basic uh, question. But in it, this rabbi basically came down to the conclusion that bad things happen. God doesn't want bad things to happen. God cares for you, but God can't fix all your problems. That's a God that loves you, but he's not really sovereign. And so that's a God that is not able to do justice in the world. That's a God who's not able, who is not trustworthy to lead you through this world. Flip that around. A God who is sovereign and who doesn't love you is a tyrant. And sometimes we see God that way, don't we? We, we in our own mind, can see God as a tyrant. We ignore the love of God and we just think about the power and the sovereignty of God. And neither of these, they're both essential to who God is, but neither of these by themselves characterize our God. Our God is sovereign and our God is loving. He is powerful and he is good. The fact that God loves you is the most needed truth for the human soul, is a desperate need to be loved. And the fact that God is sovereign is the only hope of salvation that we have. That God is big enough to solve my sin problem, 
God is big enough to, N.T. Wright likes to say it this way, it's a great little phrase, phrase, that God is big enough to set the world right. And so both of those things are true and both of those things are essential. So we get the idea of God being one and only, the only one worthy of worship and making an exchange. Taking that out of Christianity leads to very dark places. We get the idea that God uh, is a creator God. God is the initiator. God is the sustainer. The scriptures also talk about, it's not just that God made the universe and it would go by itself. God keeps the universe running by his care and involvement. God is a God that is involved in your life. He's not so distant that you need to email him and hope you get an answer in a few days. God is with you. I mean, think about the idea of Jesus in the Great Commission. Behold, I am with you even to the end of the age. Think about Ephesians 1, when you believed, you were sealed with the very spirit of God that lives inside you, on and on and on. You get a God who's involved. You get a God that's triune, that understands intimacy and invites us into that intimacy. And we have a God that is sovereign and loving. And those, that is essentially the nature of the God that we serve. Can we say other things about God? Yes, we can. I'm not saying this is exhaustive, but I'm saying when we deny any of these things, we end up with something that doesn't look like Christianity. So a couple of questions that had been sent in ahead of time, and so I thought we'd answer this a little bit. There, there is the claim, particularly uh, just from those who are not necessarily, um, that are, let me put it this way, a lot of Americans are spiritual, but not religious. And uh, the Pew, Research Center calls them the nuns, and not nuns as in wear the funny hat. It's N-O-N-E-S. And so in, if you ever see the Pew Research Studies, which I commend to you, the, their methodology is good, is they see that a lot of people in America say that I am spiritual. I don't buy this we all got here by accident stuff. I believe that there's something more, there's a spirit, there's something transcendent in the world, but I don't buy any of these religions. And one of the ideas is really, aren't all religions pretty much the same in that they're all climbing the mountain? Here, here are the analogies. The idea is that they're all climbing the mountain, we're just all taking different paths up the mountain. You heard that before? And we're all going the same place. That is such a pretty little image, it's just completely untrue. Uh, for one thing, religions don't actually agree with each other. I mean, if you think you're omniscient and you can see everything, which this is the absurdity of this, is, well, the poor religions can't see the truth, but I can see the truth that you're all climbing the mountain. That doesn't make any sense whatsoever. But the idea is that all religions don't serve the same kind of God. Another view is kind of like the blind man and the elephant. Probably heard that. The idea that all religions are just blind people searching for the truth. And, you know, the first blind man comes up to the elephant and grabs the trunk and he said, oh, this is, uh, this creature, God, must be, you know, like a, just really powerful, like a serpent. 
Another one goes up and grabs the leg and says, oh no, God's like an oak tree. I mean, just firmly planted, etc." And it goes on and it goes on, and each one of the people see a different aspect of God. And so one of the ideas is, well, I can be spiritual, I believe in a God, but you know, all you religions, you're all probably really trying to do the same thing. I would imagine that October 7th, 2023, let's hope did away with those silly arguments for forever is it's obvious that not all religions are serving the same God. And one of the questions that comes up a lot is the idea, is the God of Islam the same as the Jewish or the Christian God? Well, let me say first, Muslims believe so. In other words, uh, Muhammad, let's go all the way back to, you know, sixth century AD. So Muhammad, who's a descendant of Abraham through Ishmael, he's an Arab. Remember from the Old Testament, Abraham's son Ishmael becomes the father of the 12 tribes of Arabia, of the uh, patriarch of the Arabic people. And so Muhammad is descended from them. And he looks and he says, look, I look around and I see all these religions, because at that time Arabia was polytheistic, hugely poly, very pagan place. He looks around and he says, I wanna restore, this is what Muhammad thought was happening, I wanna restore the religion of Abraham and the one true God. And Allah just means God in Arabic. So there is one true God. And that's part of the confession. The fundamental confession of the Muslim faith is there is no God but God and Muhammad is his prophet. And if you're a Shiite, and Ali is a friend of Muhammad. Okay, so you've got a couple of different confessions there, but fundamentally he thought, I'm gonna worship the same God. The problem with that is, if you look at the scriptures, the boundaries of that religion, you look at the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament, you look at the New Testament, you look at the Quran, and if you read those three documents, then you would come to the conclusion that the God that's described in the Quran is not the same God that is described in the Hebrew and Christian scriptures. And so Jews and Christians say, we do not worship the same God. I understand what Muhammad said and I understand that Muslims say, no, we are the three great Abrahamic religions and we all worship the same God. But just like we just got through looking at the scriptures and say, what is the God that Christians worship like? We simply just went through the essential characteristics of the God that we as Christians worship. Those are not the essential characteristics of God that you will see in the Quran. And so from my point of view as a Christian, I would answer that question that it is not the same God. With all due respect, to Muslims who would say, yes, it is. But I do not find that to be the case from the scriptures. Okay, questions? Some apostles' creeds have in them the Holy Catholic Church and others say the Christian Church. What does that mean? Uh, that's a great question. So Catholic to us, well, let me just start at the beginning. The word Catholic simply meant universal church. And so needless to say, 
back in, and I'm, I'm not trying to offend the, um, the Catholics here, I'm just gonna give you the Protestant version of this, so not trying to start a fight. But basically when the Catholic Church came into being, its structure came into being, think 500 AD, and I know that that's not the Catholic uh, chronology and that's fine, but hear my point. The point is, it was the universal church. Everybody believed the same thing, unless you were uh, divisive, you were sect, you were, they called them heretics, heretical. In other words, they didn't hold to the essential. And so you just had one church. And so they called it the Catholic church, the one universal church. And so that word in the creed, we hear it as, oh, that's one of many different varieties of Christianity. That's not what it originally meant. So I think sometimes when today, some people will change that creed to make it clearer and say, you know, one Christian church. That's not what the creed says, but it is what the creed means, to be fair. So that's a good question. <clears throat> Regarding the idea of statues or graven images, uh, the Jewish people do not have them because of the Ten Commandments. Does that still hold true for Christians and what about Catholics? Uh, well, I mean, does that still hold true? That's Jews don't, religious Jews. The word Jew can mean many things. I'm talking here about uh, religious Jews. Don't do <clears throat> statues, don't do graven images. Uh, then the question became, what about Christians, what about Catholics? Obviously, there are Christians and Catholics who do and do not see that as a graven image that we're gonna go bow down and sacrifice and worship to it. So if you think, just think Orthodox Church and icons, uh, think Catholic Church and statues, so that is not a prohibition that the Christian churches uh, uphold. They don't, they don't see it that way. They would, they would agree with the Jews, you shouldn't be worshiping some statue, but they don't think that actually just having one means that you're worshiping it. Good question. <clears throat> so I wanna close with one point. So this has been a little bit academic and I think it's important and we kinda of wanna explore the idea of what are the essentials? What do we essentially believe about God? What do we believe about God that if you change those things you wouldn't have Christianity? You wouldn't have the God of Christianity. <clears throat> but at, I've done this a little bit at the risk of not highlighting something really important uh, A.W. Tozer said this, he said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Now that's not scripture, but it's well said. What we think about God has a lot to do with our idea of what does it look like to follow Christ. In a simple sense, sometimes we think of God's the great uh, referee. He's just watching me to throw a flag when I do something wrong. Or we think of God as the great accountant. He's keeping a ledger of everything. I did some right things, I did some wrong things. Sometimes we think of God as the uh, complete enabler. I love you so much, bless your little heart, I'll forgive you for anything. You know, we get these images of God that aren't authentic. And as Tozer says, what we think about when we think of God very much influences that. When I think about God, and I'm gonna suggest this to you, I think about this. This is David 
and it's just emblematic of the scriptures. David wrote this 3,000 years ago. So if you just add up in David's life, became king in 970 BC and died in 930 BC. And so he wrote this Psalm before, likely before he became king. But in any case, we're talking 3,000 year old words. But listen to him and you can imagine David being pursued by Saul and he's out in the desert and he's watching in the night and he looks up at the stars and he begins to think and he begins to pray and he says, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers and the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? In other words, who are we humans that you even notice us and the son of man that you care for him, that you love him. The most awesome thing about God, and I mean that very literally, the thing that should cause us awe is of all the characteristics of God, I'm in awe of his sovereignty. I'm in awe and the mystery of the intimacy of the Trinity. But the thing that probably causes me the most awe is that God knows and cares for us that God loves us because a tyrant doesn't love his servants, but our God is sovereign and our God is loving. And we experience God primarily from the point of view of an unlovable person who is completely and totally loved in a sacrificial way by God. That is a powerful image of God. And if you could have one image of God, that's what it would be. And for those of you that are thinking, you know, at the front end of the purpose of your life, you know, you, and this is a, a saying that is true, but it causes a lot of anxiety, is God has a plan for your life. I don't say that, and the reason I don't say that is, I don't know about you, but a lot of you are saying, well, I know that's true, but I'm 85 and I haven't found it yet and I'm running out of time and I've just got all kinds of anxiety about this. Or I'm 25 and I haven't figured it out yet and I'm afraid I'm gonna make a big misstep. Well, that's not really very loving of God, is it? Here's what I would say a little bit differently. God loves you enough that he has a purpose for your life. That purpose can be fulfilled in a lot of different uh, jobs. It can be fulfilled in a lot of different places. And a lot of times when you pray to God and you say, God, what's your plan? Am I supposed to do this job or am I supposed to do that job? Am I supposed to move here or am I supposed to move there? Am I supposed to marry this person or am I not supposed to marry? You know, the big questions of life and we sometimes get some angst like, oh my goodness, if I make the wrong decision, I'll be out of God's plan. Let me just assure you that if you follow God, you can't be out of God's plan. If you will follow Jesus Christ, our God is big enough, and the reason God doesn't always answer this the way you want it answered is, has it ever occurred to you that God might say, I can bless either one of those. You just feel free, darling, and do what you want because I'm gonna bless this wherever you go. This is a God that's so powerful. Not only can I bless either one of these, I can even make it work out for good if you goof up. Now, that's an awesome God, and that God loves you. Our God loves you enough to have a purpose for your life. So relax and just feel the love of God. Amen. Next week, hell. See you then. <laughs>